The year was 1519. Spain was doing all it could do to conquer the world at that time. There was one man who stood out as the conquistador of his time. He was a man of extreme pride, a man of extreme greed, a man who was extremely power hungry. His name was Hernando Cortez, and he had learned of a treasure, a treasure in the land of the Aztecs. They, they had covered, coveted this treasure and protected it for more than 600 years. No one had been able to defeat the fierce Aztec warriors. But Cortez took it upon himself to convince the Spanish government that it was his time and his destiny. Spain gave him 11 ships, 500 soldiers, 100 sailors, and they set out for the Yucatan Peninsula. By the time they had gotten there, there was a mutiny on the bounty. He had squelched the mutiny, but there was a problem. The problem was there were still grumblers in the ranks. So he gathered his supporters and he said, we're going to do one thing and one thing only. We are going to burn the ships. And like, what happened? burn the ships? How are we going to get back home? No, we're going to burn the ships. If we go home, if we are successful in stealing this treasure, we are going to go home on their ships. The path forward was clear for Cortez. All or nothing, 100% commitment. The option of failure was gone. You either conquer or you die. They would be successful in their mission. Now, I share this not in as, a, as an example to glorify the exploits of a power-hungry man, but to emphasize the requirement for commitment, for 100% being all in when we face obstacles in our lives. Right. Have you ever considered that when we come into a time of our life where there's a huge obstacle in front of us, God calls us to have daring faith and daring obedience? Such is what we're going to talk about today. If you get anything at all out of today's teaching, get this. Life's obstacles are no match for God when he is for us and with us. Let me say that again. Life's obstacles, those difficult things in life that we face, are no match for God when we're on his team. Because when we're on his team, he is for us, he is with us. He calls us to daring faith and daring obedience. Well, God's got a lot to say about that as we step into yet another week of this amazing series called Strong and Courageous, a series in which we're looking at the character of Joshua, a well-known leader of faith in Scripture. I'm excited today because I get to share about one of my favorite stories in the Bible, but also one of the most disturbing stories of the Bible, the Battle of Jericho. Now, we're in the book of Joshua, and you're going to notice that we're not going in chronological order. And the reason why is for the past two weeks, Pastor Bob has had us hang out in Joshua 1, verse 9. An explicit command, be strong and courageous, do not be afraid. With an explicit promise, for I will be with you wherever you go. So now God's going to put his people to the test in their first military operation as they step into the promised land. We are going to be in Joshua chapter 5, verses 13 through 15, and all of Joshua 6. So turn to Joshua 5. Let me set the scene for what's happened, and we go back 2,000 years ago. That's when Christ goes to the cross. He dies, he's buried, he's resurrected. 1,400 years or 1,200 years before that, somewhere in that time frame, our story takes place. Now, just as God had affirmed Moses as the leader of the Jewish people, he parts the Red Sea and Moses takes him into the wilderness. So now he's affirming Joshua. 
He parts the Jordan River at flood stage in a miraculous way, and they set foot into the promised land. Now, you may remember 38 years before this, Joshua and a guy named Caleb and 10 other spies went into the promised land and they came back with an unfavorable report, except Joshua and Caleb. They said, we can take this land, but, but the other spy says, we can't. There are giants in the land, fierce warriors and fortified cities. Enter Jericho. Jericho is right on the underbelly of Canaan. It's a perfect invasion route. So Joshua being a good military man, his people, they've set foot into the promised land and they've got a conquest. And that first place they got to take is Jericho. And it's a very difficult city. So being a good military commander, he goes scouts out. He sends his scouts out, two spies. And they go into the city. And when they're in the city, a prostitute named Rahab helps them. She hides them. She hides them in her, her apartment, which is in the wall of Jericho. And she says, listen, we've heard about your exploits of, of Yahweh. We've heard about what he's done, the miracles he's done. Everyone is fearful. I want to follow you. I want to follow Yahweh. Hide me, protect me, because I'm taking care of you. They said, okay, if you stick to your word, put a, a, a scarlet cord out your window, and when we invade the city, we're going to kill everybody. We're not going to kill you. We will save you. So they come back and they give the report to Joshua. Yeah, it's a fortified city, formidable walls, tough terrain around the city. God's got it though. And oh, by the way, we got to save this gal named Rahab. We're going to talk about her in a few minutes. So God has done a mano o mano meeting with Joshua. He's given him that explicit command and that explicit promise. Now he's going to do another meeting. So before we get started, two things. First of all, this is going to be a turbulent flight. I just want to tell you that. We're going to be at the 30,000 feet level, and then we're going to be rolling down into the weeds, then popping back to the 30,000 foot level and back into the weeds. A whole lot of scripture. So take your Dramamine, put your scalpamine patch behind your ear, get your puke bag out. A lot of turbulence. Be ready for it, okay? I'm just, this is your captain speaking. I'm just letting you know this. Second thing, I leaned heavily on two theologians. Uh, one, a, a dead guy by the name of Arthur Pink. He wrote a book called Gleanings on Joshua back in the 1940s. A whole lot of King James Version stuff. It doth maketh my head hurt, but it's really, really good. Uh, the second one is a, a theologian who is of, of my generation. She's amazing, uh, incredible Old Testament scholar by the name of Dr. Sandra Richter. So here we go. Let's start. Remember, daring faith, daring obedience. You guys ready to go? All right, Joshua 5, 13 through 15. Now, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us or for our enemies? Look at the answer here. Neither, he replied. But as commander of the army of the Lord, underline that circle that, we got to talk about that. As commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy. Sounds a lot like what God said to Moses. And Joshua did so. He's having a life-changing moment on his, uh, on his first expedition, if you will. And it's going to be tough. It's going to be difficult. And God's going to put him to the test. So who's this commander of the Lord's army? I'm glad you asked. One of three things. It could be a theophany. A theophany is a visible appearance of God in, in the Old Testament. We see that a few times in the Old Testament. It could be. 
First Chronicles 17, God says, I'm the Lord of, of the, the, the armies of God, or I'm the, the Lord of hosts. So it could be God. I think it is, actually. It could be a Christophany. A Christophany is a visible appearance of the Messiah in the Old Testament. We see that in a handful of, of other places. The Bible, the Old Testament's a progressive revelation of Jesus, so that's possible. Or it could just be simply be a messenger, a special messenger from God. No matter what, we don't know, but we know this. God is gonna put his people to the test. And here's a truth you gotta hang on to. Remember this truth, because it's a lifelong truth. Whenever God calls you to a cause, he's gonna fight for you. But be ready to be tested by God or shaken by Satan. Be ready to be tested by God. God tests us, he tests our faith. He doesn't tempt us but he will test us. We see it throughout scripture. And so we gotta be ready for that. And, and, and Joshua and the people have to be ready for that. So let's go back to the test. What about the words? I'm neither for you nor against you. It's as if God, this messenger, is saying, I've given you all you need. Now I'm gonna stand back and see if you're really the man of faith I think you are. So he gives him a promise. Joshua 6 verses one and two. <clears throat> now Jericho was tightly shut up because the Israelites, no one went out and no one came in. Then look at this. Then the Lord, Lord, capital letters, that means Yahweh. That's why I think this is a theophany, God showing up. Then the Lord said to Joshua, see, I have delivered Jericho into your hands. Underline that and put a star around it. I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. He gives them a promise. You've, the battle's already been won. The Canaanites are shaking in their shoes. You see, they look at the people of God really as, or the, 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 as at Yahweh as someone who is a God of nature, not a God of the military fortress. So when they saw all these people out there, they brought everybody into the fortress of Jericho. You've got about 600,000 Israelite warriors. You've got about a million and a half Jewish people out there. It's a big crowd. And the Canaanites are fearful. We would see that in Joshua too. Rahab says that. So let's talk about this, this city. I got a picture of it here. It's an artist's rendition. Let's talk about it because it's a formidable piece of terrain. First of all, it sits on the top of a hill on, on a heap. It's about five, eight, uh, five acres to eight acres in diameter, so not very big. It, to get to it, you've got flat land around it, then you come up this hill and up the hill into the walls. Now, if you are successful on getting up the steep hill to the walls and, and you're, you're, you're not being sniped at by the archers on the walls, you gotta take the walls down. The angle of attack doesn't allow you to do that. So what would happen is if uh, the military in that time, all they would simply do is they would surround the city and starve it out. But that's not what happens. God has a different plan. So we know the objective, Jericho. Now let's look at the plan, verses three through five. God says to Joshua, march around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Pay attention to these numbers. Have seven priests carry the trumpets of ram's horns. Underline that, we're gonna come back to it. Ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the, the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have all the people give a loud shout. Then 
The wall of the city will collapse and the people will go up every man straight in. What? Seriously? Okay, if I were Joshua, I'd be looking at this Lord's messenger like a pig looking at a wristwatch. I'd be going, what? You've gotta be kidding me. This, I, I would have more questions than answers. And if I were Joshua, I think God would be saying, Kip, listen, man, there's no turning back. It's time to burn the ships. And trust me, are you all in? Are you committed? Joshua doesn't question him. And I just wonder if he had more questions than answers in his heart, because I know I would. My guess is you would too. Because folks, whenever we come to a time of difficulty in, in our lives, that proverbial Jericho, that big obstacle in the way, we can have more questions than answers. Let me give you an example, very simple example. You're a leader in an organization, you've been there for about a decade, you've done very, very well, things are going well, the people trust you, the CEO trusts you, your organization is doing great things. Things are going well, and one of the senior leaders in the organization retires. And so you're thinking you're a shoe in for the job, but before you're even able to step into it and put your name in the hat, they hire someone from outside the organization who doesn't even know your organization. Now that person has a great reputation, but you're like, come on, seriously? I don't even get a shot at the title. I don't even get to throw my name in the hat. Am I not worthy? You've got more questions than answers. How about this one though? That person leaves and they actually offer you the job and you're working 40 to 50 hours a week and it's really, really hard. And you're offered this job and you know if you take this job, it's gonna be more like 60 to 70 hours a week because with great responsibility, great power comes great responsibility. And you're gonna sacrifice your health and you're gonna sacrifice the health of your family at the altar of the office. What do you do? Pay raise, it's what you're made for, you think, more questions than answers. And you can fill in the blank with so many other scenarios, health issues, relationship issues, marriage issues, betrayal, more questions than answers. Folks, when you have more questions than answers, let me steal a, a, a piece from the playbook of Henry Blackaby. Four things to know that you're walking in God's will. Four things to know you're walking in God's will. It's not in your handouts or anything like this. You gotta go old school and write it down. Four things, and it may seem formulaic, but the Holy Spirit gets involved in these. And for the past 15 years, it has worked so well in my life. Four things, let's go through them first. God's word, God's word, God's word. What is God's word saying about the situation? There are principles of scripture that apply to every area of our life. Pastor Bob hit that home last week. God's word. Number two, godly men and women. What are spiritually mature Christ followers? Not just any Christ follower, but spiritually mature men and women saying about this and are speaking into your life about it. Godly men and women. Third thing, prayer. As you pray, what is the Holy Spirit placing on your heart? Now, you gotta be careful here because you can have a bad burrito and make an emotional decision and say, oh, God told me to do this and God's going, I never told you to do that. I've seen people train wreck their families, their lives, their ministries, their jobs, their organizations they're in because they say, God told me to, and God's like, never, never had that one coming. And, and for those of you who are emotional, you have to be very, very careful about that. Yeah. Because I, I once heard a pastor say that emotions make great passengers in the car of life, but lousy drivers. 
So what does prayer say about it? Last but not least, circumstances. Circumstances. What are the circumstances that are out there? Open doors you can walk through, closed doors that you can't, and you gotta be careful here too, because remember, Jonah had a wide open door to go to Tarshish where he wasn't supposed to go, and he smelled like fish food. You don't wanna smell like fish food. Don't be like Jonah. So, those four things, when all four things, not one of four, two of four, three of four, but all four things are firing on the piston, the Holy Spirit's working, working in it, you can be darn sure that you've done your best to get some answers, to walk in God's will. So back to Joshua. Back to Joshua. He had every right to say, say what? But he didn't. God had told him, be strong and courageous. I've got you. Maybe right now, maybe right now, God's saying the same thing to you. Burn the ships. Daring faith, daring obedience. All right, let's look at the plan. Verses six through nine. So Joshua, son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, take up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and have seven priests carry the trumpets in front of it. And he ordered the people, advance, march around the city with the armed guard going ahead of the Ark of the Lord. When Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets before the Lord, that meant before the Ark, went forward blowing their trumpets. And the Ark of the Lord's Covenant followed them. The armed guard marched ahead of the priests and blew the trumpets, and the rear guard followed the ark. All this time, the trumpets were sounding. I've preached on this passage so many times, and I've never until this time, I've read it a thousand times easily, I've never noticed that Joshua didn't share God's encouragement with the people. He kept it to himself. And I think the reason why is not only God testing Joshua, Joshua is testing the faith and obedience of his people. So let's look at this crazy plan. It's a plan that doesn't make sense. First of all, let's talk about the number seven. The number seven, as you guys know, we've talked about this a lot of time from here, is a, a, a very important number in scripture. It means completeness. It means divine perfection. In this passage on, Josh, on uh, Jericho, it's used seven times too, 14 times, so it's important. You got seven priests, seven trumpets, seven days of marching, seven circuits on the seventh day. Seven in Hebrew, the, the Hebrew word is Shavah, and the root word of Shavah is to be fully satisfied, to be complete. That's why God, on the seventh day of creation, rests because he's fully satisfied. Think about this. Seven weeks between the Passover and Pentecost, Seven weeks between the time Jesus goes to the cross on Passover, dies, is buried, resurrected, and then seven weeks later, he, he's showing up at Pentecost and he's pouring out his Holy Spirit. And or for the Jewish people, the seventh year is the Sabbath year. And if you multiply those seven years, those Sabbath years by seven, at the end of the 49th year, you get a very big year, the 50th year, the year of celebration, the year of Jubilee. And then also you've got seven promises that, that God gives Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant. What's my point, folks? This is my point. This was more than a military campaign. This was a religious event. It was more than a military campaign. There was something divine happening here. It was a religious event, a religious event that required daring faith and daring obedience. And I want to talk about that obedience piece. Because oftentimes, we pastors, we don't like to talk about the obedience piece because we get the, the hate mail. You're all legalistic. You're all about performance. No, we're not at all. 
We gotta talk about that. Jesus gave us two commands he wants us to be obedient to. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love each other as you wanna be loved. Obedience in those is tough. Let's talk about loving the Lord. A while back, God convicted me. He convicted me that I had this dark place in this heart, this sin in my heart that I needed to give up to him. It's as if he was saying, Kip, I wanna bless you. I want, I'm blessing you already, but I wanna open a floodgate of blessings, but you're being disobedient in your heart. You gotta get a handle of this. You've got to burn the ships. And folks, the same is true for all of us, probably. Faith and obedience walk arm in arm down the same street. If you want the blessings of God, there's the obedience that he requires, not performance. Grace is not a license to sin, though. Faith and obedience go hand in hand down the same street. So let's talk about the, the priests here. The priests are Levites. They have a ministry function, not a military function. So you, you've got the front guard. We're going to talk about them in a second. Then you got the priests. Seven of them are blowing trumpets. And then the other Levites are carrying the ark. The ark represents the presence of God in front of the people of God, leading them to the place of God, the promised land. And they're blowing trumpets. Let's talk about those trumpets. Two types of trumpets that Israel would use. There's a silver trumpet, and I'd expect they'd use those. First of all, silver's cool. And they look good. But on top of that, they were used to announce that something big was ready to happen. Last time I checked, something big was ready to happen here, don't you think? But they didn't. Remember I had you underline ram's horn? Um, that was the type of trumpet they used. Ram's horns were only used during a time of celebration. He said, I've given you this land. I've already given you this city. It's time to celebrate. So you got the front guard. And I would imagine the front guard consisted of two and a half tribes, the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh. Why is that important? Because if you go back a little bit before this, right before Moses dies, those two and a half tribes go to Moses and they petition God saying, hey, we're ranchers and there's some really good land on the west side of the Jordan. We want to occupy that land. And God says, okay, go for it. So they have already occupied that land. There were 44,600 incredible warriors from these two and a half tribes. And what we would see in the military campaigns of the conquest of Canaan is they would lead the fight. So you got, you got these guys, you got the priests, you've got the ark, and then you got a million and a half Jewish people. Behind that, you had the rear guard of the other 500 plus thousand warriors. And it had to freak out the Canaanites. We don't know if all of them marched around together because that's a whole lot of people in a small area or whether it was a contingent that represented them. We don't know. But trumpets are blaring, then complete silence. Trumpets are blaring, complete silence. Verse 10. But Joshua had commanded the people, do not give a war cry. Do not raise your voices. Do not say a word until the day I tell you to shout, then shout. So during that time, times of blasts, times of silence, and it begs a question for us. Have you ever considered that when you're facing your proverbial Jericho, there's a time to, to publicize your pain? There's a time to shout, I need prayer. There's a time to say, I've got a problem here, I need help. And a time simply to be silent, to be still. It's a test of patience. Whenever we 
are in a time where we need to be silent. It's a test of patience. Psalm 46, one of my favorite Psalms, says, be still and know that I am God. And when God, verse 10, that's verse 10. And when verse 10, in verse 10, when God says that, he's speaking to two entities. First of all, he's speaking to the enemies of God, saying, be still, shut up. I'm God, you're not. But then he's speaking to us and he's saying, just be still. Just sit in my lap. I've got you. I know your pain. Follow my plan, even though it doesn't make sense. Be strong and courageous. I'm fighting for you. Just be silent. So the Hebrew nation does this. They follow the plan to the T. Once a day, for, uh, once per day for six days, they march around the city. They follow it to the T. What was God up to? And I started thinking about that. I, speculation here, but I think God is giving the, Israel, or the, the Canaanites every chance they have to repent. He's given them every chance to repent, to, to come to him, to turn from their ways because they're a very evil people. We'll talk about that more in a second. But they don't repent. They hadn't repented for hundreds of years. If you go back to Genesis 15, God's talking to Abraham and he says, hey, I'm gonna kerspankle these Canaanites for all the evil they do. He gives them several hundred years to repent. The, 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 the Israelites are marching around the city. The Canaanites are cowering in fear, yet they don't repent. All except Rahab and her family. And I started thinking about this. What if they decided the Jewish people decided to stop on the sixth day and say, you know what, this is a crazy plan. I'm done, I'm out of here. And God would be saying, guys, I've given you this. Just hang on. Some of you right now are going through some horrific times. You're going, you got an obstacle, you got a Jericho in front of you that's so hard, you're hanging onto your faith by your fingernails. And maybe right now you wanna quit and maybe today God's using me to say, listen, don't quit, just keep running. Just do one more lap, one more lap. Let's fast forward to the seventh day, verses 15 through 17. On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and marched around the city how many times? Seven, seven times. In the same manner, except on that day, they circled the city seven times. That, that's emphasis for us. The seventh time around when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the people, shout, look at this, for the Lord has given you the city. He finally shares the encouragement that God had given him. They had passed his test. The city and all that, it, that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Underline that, some of your translations say under the ban. We gotta talk about that because it's disturbing. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared. And why? Because she hid the spies we sent. Complete faith, complete obedience, daring faith, daring obedience. He says, the Lord has given you this city. You gotta destroy everything under the ban. Everything that's devoted. The Hebrew word there is haram, haram. And what haram means is to be dedicated and doomed at the same time. The dedicated things would be all the, the metallic things, the things of worth. And they would take those metallic things that they would find and they would put them in the tabernacle. The doomed things, those were people. And that's where this gets really, really disturbing. Verse 20. When the trumpet sounded, the people shouted, and at the sound of the trumpets, remember ram's horn, celebration, 
When the people gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. It's a miracle. Joshua didn't win the battle of Jericho. God won it. So every man charged straight in and they took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed the haram with every sword, every living thing in it. Men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. Even the donkeys. This is disturbing. It is. You know, when you get to a tough piece of scripture, it's easy to say, okay, I'm going to read on and get to the good part. I would just encourage you not to do that. We're not going to do that today. We don't do that here at Cornwall. I would encourage you to delve into it, to be intellectually honest, to look at all those great commentaries that are out there that talk about this. Talk to someone, a theologian, someone who's knowledgeable of scripture and try to figure it out because God gives us all these incredible dead people before us who have tried to figure it out and have gotten a lot of Holy Spirit inspiration to help us. But he also gives us the Holy Spirit to help us figure it out as best we can. He's God, we're not. We may not figure it all out, so let's do our best here. I'm gonna do my best. This is disturbing and I have a heart time with it. I just want to own that. But what we see here are two things. We see a supernatural judgment, one that's going to occur against Jericho, as well as a supernatural judgment that will occur in the future. So first of all, let's talk about God's judgment and let's start it off with God's mercy. God's mercy. You have to go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. God creates this place on earth called Eden. It was God's home on earth. He creates a, a, a man and a woman, Adam and Eve, and they've got perfect fellowship with God. They're naked and they don't even know it. They don't care. It's a perfect thing that they have with God, a perfect existence. And God gives them a command. He says, don't break this command. He doesn't take away their free will. And so guess what? They're tempted and they break the command. God never wanted to kill. He never wanted that. God, instead of killing them, kills animals. He sacrifices animals and he takes their skins and covers them because they're naked and afraid. They're realizing that they're naked and they're shameful. It's a foreshadowing of what Jesus would do on the cross for us. He would cover us and all of our sin with his blood and righteousness. So God sends them out of the garden says, you can't be in my presence because of this ugliness. And when he sends them out of the garden, all hell breaks loose on earth. Difficulty, ugliness, famine, wars, evil of, of extreme proportions. Jesus sets it right partially. It won't be set right completely until Christ's return. God is a God of mercy, though. And he has given the Canaanite people every chance to repent, hundreds upon hundreds of years to repent, and they won't. Seven intense days, and they won't. First thing is a, a supreme uh, supernatural judgment. J God is judging the little g gods of the Canaanite people. The Canaanite people worship these gods who require them to sacrifice children, child rape, incest, bestiality, sorcery, witchcraft. That's the norm for the Canaanite people, a very evil people. And God says, okay, it's judgment day. It's time to die. In Canaanite history, they would never repent. 
Israel's history, God knew that the Canaanite people would pull them away from Yahweh. And that's exactly what would happen. Fast forward several hundred years and the Israelites are completely scattered out around the land into exile because they followed the, uh, the gods of the Canaanite religion. So you got God's mercy, but God has to be just because without justice, there can't be true love. So let's look at God's sovereignty, this second part. God is sovereign over all of life and he knows our hearts, every single heart he knows. He knows who's gonna repent, he knows who's not. He knows who's gonna follow him, he knows who's not. And here he knew that every single man, woman and child in that town would not repent, all except for Rahab and her family. And you may be saying right now, you know, Kip, all right, this is, this is why I follow the God in the New Testament, Jesus, and not the God of the Old Testament, because this is, just, this is just horrible. And if you're saying that, I think you got a bigger theological issue, because then you got to wrestle with some New Testament passages that point right back to Jesus in creation. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, He was with God in the beginning, John chapter 1. The Word is Jesus. Or, or how about this one? In Colossians 1, verses 15, 23, uh, in Colossians, Paul talks about how Christ was there in the beginning. It, Jesus was there in the beginning creating, and he didn't take a multi-thousand year nap. Jesus talks about judgment because it's real and it's hard. Matthew 11, verses 22 through 24, he's listing out a whole bunch of cities. And he says, woe to you, fill in the blank for the city. He says, woe to you cities, woe to you cities who have, have done all these things, you've refused to repent, repent. It's gonna be better for you on judgment day. You'll be worse off on judgment day than Sodom, as in Sodom and Gomorrah. Into Matthew 16, Jesus talks about judgment, a future judgment day, this supernatural event that's gonna occur. Jesus also talks about in Matthew chapters 24 and 25, the end of times with a lot of scary language. And then, Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15, we see the judgment of those who aren't following Christ. It's real and it's disturbing and we do a disservice to God and others when our hearts aren't broken for that. The story of Jonah. God gives Nineveh the chance to repent and they repent. He would have done the same for Jericho, but they don't repent. Just as, as Rahab's repentance covered her family, so the refusal to repent from all these others doomed the other families. That's the best I can do with that, guys. I don't understand it, but when I come to a place I don't understand, I do my best, and at the end of the day, I say, God, you're gonna work it out. I don't get it, but I trust you. So let's talk about Rahab. Rahab puts her faith in God and she would become what's, what biblical scholars call a, a trophy of God's grace. A trophy of God's grace. Here's what would happen. She and her family would be taken out of the city. They would be saved. They would be placed outside the camp because they're unclean Gentiles for a certain amount of time. Then they would say, hey, we wanna follow Yahweh. She would end up marrying a Jewish man by the name of Solomon. She and Solomon would have a son. His name would be Boaz. You may know him as a great godly man in the book of Ruth who marries uh, an immigrant named, named uh, Ruth. She's a Moabitess and she wants to be Jewish and follow Yahweh. They get together and they have a son. His, son. his name is Obed. 
Obed grows up, he gets married, he and his wife have a son, his name's Jesse, he grows up, he gets married, and they have, he and his wife have several sons, and the youngest, a guy named David. You know David and Goliath? You know King David? The, the earthly line in which we trace the Messiah goes not only through David, but all the way up and through Rahab, a prostitute, a Gentile. How amazing is that? A trophy of God's grace. Have you ever realized that you and I are trophies of God's grace, of his love for us in spite of all of our jacked up Praise God for that, right? So back to the battle. Battle's over. Joshua puts a curse on the city. He says, curse be the person who, who rebuilds this city. Sure enough, in 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 34, a guy walks in there, he rebuilds the city, and he's cursed because of it. Sucks to be him. Verse 27. So the Lord was with Joshua, and Joshua's fame spread throughout the land. Daring faith, daring obedience. Not a whole lot of turbulence on this flight. So let me land the plane. What I love about this story is how it points to Jesus. Go with me on this. God knew that Adam and Eve would biffit in the Garden of Eden. It, 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 God knew and, uh, uh, that Adam and Eve would screw up, but before that, he already had the plan, the plan to make things right with him. He would step down from his throne, setting aside so much of his, his, uh, his rights, and he would be born in a manger, not a palace, to peasantry, not royalty. He would come as a humble Jewish rabbi, not as a strong military conqueror. The plan didn't make sense because there was a Jericho that needed to be conquered. The last few hours of Jesus' earthly ministry, he's on his knees in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's struggling. He's struggling hard. And he says, Father, I don't want to do this. I and the Father are one. He's proven that he's God. All these miracles, I don't want to do this, but not my will, but your will be done. Daring faith, daring obedience. And guess what? Luke chapter 22, I believe, verse 43. There's a messenger that shows up to Jesus before he goes to the cross while he's at that time and he ministers to him. What if, what if he simply said, Yeshua, be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid. And then Jesus goes to the cross and he takes on and conquers our proverbial Jericho, annihilating Haram, the inhabitants of sin and death. Explicit command, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Explicit promise, for I will be with you wherever you go. Then Jesus turns and gives us an explicit command. Go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all what I have taught you. Explicit promise, for I will be with you to the end of time, through that ugly judgment time, because with me in your life, judgment's done for you. Be strong and courageous. So let me give you a challenge as I close today. Challenge is straightforward. Where is God calling you to burn the ships in your life? Where is God calling you to burn the ships in your life? Maybe it's a sin issue. 
Maybe it's a a, a sin issue, a a place in your heart that you just got to give up to God. Maybe it's a relationship issue. You've got a toxic person in your life and you got to put up a healthy boundary. They're taking you down an ugly road and they're pulling you outside the will of God. Perhaps it's a job issue where where God's saying, I need you. I I need you to stay in this job to be committed because you're the only face, face of Jesus here. Or maybe he's saying, hey, it's time to pull out of here and go somewhere else. Whatever it is, remember those four things to help you discern God's will. And God says, daring faith and daring obedience, be strong and courageous.